Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, cultural connection, positive self-identity and a sense of belonging within family and community are the bedrock of health and well-being. If we are to improve outcomes, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and perspectives must be at the heart of systems that impact children. This week's guest, Catherine Little, is an Orenta Loritja woman from Central Australia with a strong background in senior management positions with First Nations organisations. Catherine has also held senior roles within the Northern Territory Education Department, the ABC and NITV. As a journalist by trade, Catherine's motivation has always been to drive change that leads to positive outcomes and options for First Nations people. Over the past 10 years, she's led multidisciplinary teams, overseen workplace transformations and advocated for policy reform. Listen in as Catherine takes us on a journey of her experience as a First Nations woman striving for better care for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children who have experienced trauma. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode. Today it gives me great pleasure to introduce Miss Catherine Little. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Tell us, where are you from? Where am I from? Tell everybody where you're from. (laughs) Oh, look, it's always a hard one. So I start with my nationality, actually. So I identify as an Aranda and Luridja woman. So the Aranda people in particular, I belong to the group known as the Mbandarinya. Mbandawa being Alice Springs, Aranda belonging to. So say if you were from Sydney, you would be Sydney Aranda. Anyhow, so that's my grandfather's homelands. And I love my grandfather's homelands because like the name and the Aranda name, that land is very coarse. You know, when you walk on the ground, you feel the rocks and they're a bit rougher. And the, um, you know, the gum trees, they have a whistle, a very distinct rustling sound that belongs to that place. And the other group that my family belong to are the Luritja, which is south of Alice Springs or Mbundurinya. And, and I love that word Luritja because it means not a runter. Um, okay. <laughs> that one really amuses me and again speaks very strongly to the type of nation that the Aranta mob are. But uh, the Luritja mob, if I break it down, it's sort of Yankunajara, Nangajara, Mangajara. So those people are responsible for Wataka. Or if you don't know what Wataka is, it's, it's Kings Canyon and Uluru. So everyone oh. should know what Uluru is. Yeah. And it's a line that we're very, very proud of. But it also encompasses the Pradama, which we are part of as well. And the Pradama are, are known as the river people. And those rivers, I guess, played a a really significant role in my life, as they would in a lot of Aboriginal people's lives, because a lot of our culture is based around the movement of the rains and the movement of the rivers. So we spend a lot of time playing in those rivers. And, and in actual fact, 
they were considered not safe. Sorry, the swimming pools when I was growing up were considered not safe by my grandmother because she didn't understand what a swimming pool was. But she certainly understood rivers. So we used to, whenever it rained, we didn't have to go to school. We could go swimming and we learned how to navigate currents and we learned how to tread water because we were always in trouble. And, you know, Nana would be walking up and down the side with a stick ready to flog us for being <laughs> silly. And it means, but it, what it means is you learn a lot about how to use the water. Yeah. And I think in some ways, those learning lessons based around the river, well, not in some ways, it absolutely is connected to our way of learning and our way of understanding how to be. But also, you know, it takes a lot of resilience to tread water for 20 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> so don't get a hiding. Right. Anyhow, so that's essentially where I, where I root myself. But I do colloquially say I was raised out bush largely. Yeah. And we had a cattle station southwest of Alice Springs. And uh, we also went to my nana's sister's homelands as well, which are just outside Indaria or Hermansburg. I have a very diverse background. I've lived lots of different places, done lots of different things, and really grateful for this yeah. incredible myriad of experiences that, that I'm lucky to have been part of. You seem so grounded and ingrained in, in the culture, obviously, where your family is from, which is really amazing and so beautiful the way you put that. And the importance of that and that, how that's played out in your life. Tell me a bit about that and, and what it means to you. Oh, look, I think it's everything. And I know that we often as a family, you know, we are an Indigenous family. So, you know, there are, are barriers that we've had to jump over. And my grandfather was very, very good at it. He, We have an uncle who was part of the stolen generation and he referred to the way grandpa thought as thinking dangerously. And that was understanding who you are, being able to understand who you are, understanding what your cultural strengths are, and then how to apply them in a modern world. What we know through grandpa's experiences and, and the way he taught us all is that for us, it's about relationships. And he was the master at understanding how to work around different, I guess, cultural scenarios, uh, whether that be non-Indigenous or Indigenous, and, and how to merge the two in a way that was complementary. I think back on the challenges that someone like my grandfather had. You know, he was, he was a, a remarkable, absolutely remarkable man. You know, he and his brothers bought a cattle station in the 50s. You know, we, we weren't even allowed to buy cattle stations in the 50s. So that talks about wow. how incredible this 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 moment was and he used that cattle station to ensure that people had a safe place to go and, and that was a history of it so his father was a man called Bill Little he was a he was a settler and a pastoralist and he and the station next to us which was originally called Stalin Springs they were considered to be communists and what they did was they created a safe space for Pinjatas in particular to go to as they were being hunted off the other cattle stations during a period of time, which our mob refer to as rifle times. And that meant, you know, well, yeah. that, that it means what it absolutely means is in, in our living history, we were still being shot. Yes. So um, this became a safe place and Grandpa kept it that way. And, and alongside that, he had, um, while he had been removed very early in his life to the bungalow, so the first wave of the stolen generation, it's something he spoke about to the day he died, actually. They sent them off by the time they were 12. They were kicked out of the bungalow. And by nature of where it was positioned, his mother was able to sort of call out to him at night time using bird signs or sounds and um, different signals to be able to communicate that she was there. So I guess a lot of that is understanding that a lot of the benefits we have as a family are because our family was able to stay connected to country and to culture and to family and the ways that our grandfather was able to work around that. So yeah. that, that one speaks to, the, I guess, the more 
I don't want to use the word modern, but I guess broader Australian context. But on the other side of that was our Nana, who was a very, very traditional woman. And I think she is speaker of multiple languages, as was my grandfather, but Nana has more. He might have spoken three or four languages. We think Nana speaks eight. And the reason we think it is because her understanding of language frameworks, and even ours actually, is changing the more linguists look at these things because we just talk. We just talk. And we don't say we speak this language or this language. We say that we speak the language for that country. And as you move into each of the different nations, you just naturally fall into the language that belongs to that particular country. So asking her how many languages she could speak, she could never really fully answer that because that's not our language. It's not our terminology. We don't understand the world like that. But very, very lucky to have had someone like Nana because alongside all those languages is also the ability for her to, you know, engage in cultural practices, so ceremony and storytelling and dancing and all those sorts of things that that we know that as a family we have been incredibly privileged to maintain and to be able to access constantly. And, and, and that's a gift that not all of our mob have been able to access and we certainly know that we are lucky. We're not special because of it. It's just that for whatever reason, the signs lined up or the ancestors lined up yeah. in just the right way for us to be able to stay connected to that. But that connection to country that you speak about, I mean, it's so critical Which in the stuff I've read about what you're doing at the moment and, and Snake and what they're up to, but just trying to embed and connect kids to the country. I mean, is that a crucial thing? Oh, absolutely. And I guess, again, we're learning more and more about this. You know, you hear people talk about things like transgenerational trauma, and we've known about this for a very, very long time. We know that these these things are inherited, and we know that we have triggers that people don't see because we are carrying the stories of our ancestors, and it is the way we've grown up. But we're learning more and more now that, yes, when we talk about it being inherited, absolutely it is inherited and inherit because our genealogy has changed. And again, if we talk about the spiritual side, given that I am a person who is lucky enough to be able to practice ceremony, I know very well that there are things that go along with practicing ceremony that you could never explain in a modern context. The ability to see things or to connect to the mob that you're singing with these things they st- you start communicating on, I don't even know how you explain it in English, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. What, what I do know is that you connect to your mob in a different way. And I know that who I am right now would not have been possible if, if we hadn't had some luck along the way in being able to maintain that connection to culture, understand who we are, who we belong to. And there is a level of responsibility in that, in understanding that there are other mob that we can work with to ensure that they have access to culture as they need it. Because certainly I would struggle if I didn't know who my mob was. And and even in my work, you come across people who are finding out who they are and they're, you know, they, they're looking and they're searching and they want to know who they belong to. And I guess it's a bit like a chair, you know, with its four legs that we're sitting on. If you're missing that part of you that talks to you about your identity, well, your chair's a bit unstable. Yeah. I mean, so well put. And it's, I heard you speak about it earlier today, which was really interesting as well. But I guess if we, if we just, before we touch on the challenges that we're facing with the youth and the children in the context of Indigenous, you know, social, emotional well-being, but also the displacement and stuff that's still happening, we just touch on how did you, how did you get involved with Snake? Like what, what was your professional 
Yeah, yeah. I, I still scratch my head, and if you could see me, you'd see I'm scratching my head um, <laughs> <laughs> because I often think about this, and I think I don't know how I got here. So I'm, I'm, I am a journalist, and and that is what I what I did, and what I did for many years. And along the way, I guess I took breaks when I had children because journalism is not very friendly to mothers. Some of that was working in the education department, which I really, really enjoyed, and working in Indigenous engagement in particular, and seeing the difference that you could have when you actually made space for Aboriginal people to A, identify what an issue was, B, come up with the solutions, and then C, be able to affect an implementation. So I really loved that, absolutely loved that. And, and it taught me to see the world outside of journalism, which is a really good thing, right? You can't be an effective journalism if you don't understand how the world actually works. Yeah. And then, you know, but, but I'd always fall back into it. So, you know, then moving back into journalism, it was really, really obvious that if I really wanted to affect change, if I really wanted stories to have the impact they needed to have, then I, I couldn't actually just be a journalist. And I use that term very loosely just because any story that you do is shaped by your producers and your chief of staff and your editors and those sorts of things. So you needed to be in a position where it was not only your ability to craft a story and to tell a story, but to ensure that the perspective that needed to be told to be able to resonate to inform people and to help people to understand what was happening to them, but also to help broader communities understand why these stories were important to them as well. That meant you had to get into more senior administrative roles. So I sort of gradually moved into producing and executive producing and executive editor pieces of work. And again, you hit these little juxtaposition, these moments in time where not everything is lining up. And, and this one, again, speaks very much to culture. We, we, were, we had this massive shoot on at the Gama Festival and effectively all the resources that I had for my current affairs platforms were going to be used in this particular shoot. So there's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure because this is a big investment and this is my schedule for an entire year. And, uh, and I said to the old girl, my old nana, because I'm a bit scared of getting flight planes, so I said to her, "Will you drive up to Gama with me? I'll come through Alice Springs, and you jump on the you jump on the car with me, and we'll cruise up to that country up there, Yolngu country." And she goes, "Yeah, no worries." And I think everyone shook their heads at this. You know, your your co-driver's a ninety two year old woman, absolutely, and absolutely the best co-driver because there is nothing my nana doesn't know. She knows why it's raining. She knows what's going to happen next, and more importantly, when you're doing those big rides, because she was a stock worker for so many years she knows where the cattle are she knows where the water sources are she knows where the bends in the road are wow. and these things are committed to memory so absolutely a, a safe driver and, and we're cruising along and I'm trying to you know we're, we're leaving late I'm in trouble I know that I'm in trouble for leaving late because we've lost the we've lost the light and and I and I'm teasing her and I'm saying you know we're heading into devil devil country and uh, I say hey Nana you want to watch out for those devils. And, you know, she's sitting, and, and this is payback, you know, for years and years of my nana scaring me witless. And she's sitting there and she's going, yeah, you think, but you haven't looked in your rear view vision mirror yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, nana wins yes. again, you know, so she's always she's proving. Quick. She's quick and she proves yeah. she's the master. And even when we pull up early and we go to sleep and I say to her, you might want to watch out for that mama. And she said, yeah, that's what you think. I can see him looking at you with one eye right now. So again, uh, going to sleep, she's are. still terrifying me. Anyhow, <laughs> we're cruising along and we, we things start happening, right? Things that are just not quite, I don't know, we're losing keys in odd places. Things are just going missing. And, and what we know culturally, again, from what we understand about our mummels or our ghosts or our ancestors, 
they when they're around things happen yeah. things that you just can't quite explain they happen and nana's talking away to people all the time and and i'm teasing her i'm like nana cut a queer come we go and what's gone wrong with you and and basically what i'm teasing her i'm saying you know your brain's not working properly and she said no no i'm talking to these mob i'm like nana there's no one there and this keeps happening and we get up to gama we do the whole shoot and we're coming back and she's she's again she's talking to these people that aren't there and i'm like nana what is going on with you and she said hey these aren't my mummels they're actually yours they're yours she said that's why they're mixing me up and they're saying it's time to come home and uh, so you need to come home and finish ceremony so i took that and i said okay well fair enough and and luckily for me the sbs and nit were very very gracious and and gave me significant cultural leave to be able to do it and what was really interesting at this point in time is even when i got back to sydney and i was packing up and handing over and all those sorts of things you know i'd have people on the phone with me saying oh i thought you left your kids at home and i said well i did and they'd say well why can we hear the voices in the background so these things are really wow. like i said there's things that we can't yeah. quite explain it's so incredible. whether or not how we give that off i don't know or how it's picked up or whether it was a cross line i don't know yeah. but for me all these things coalesced at the same time and Home I went and, uh, you know, it, it was an awesome gift to be able to, you know, pick up on the Kunga Kujara. So the, for our family, that's our primary story and it involves two women. I can't talk much for it because it's super, super secret and something that is really, really special to us. So I went home with that and I wasn't ready to go back, really. I wasn't ready to go back to journalism and, and found myself doing other things to fill the time. So, you know, I filled in it. And ICTV, which was the community television station, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it because mm. of the creativity that you're able to do when you're not controlled by ratings. Yeah. So you don't have to fit a particular format. So you can do whatever you want and break all the rules. And I wow. loved seeing what Community Mob would pull in. But it was temporary. It was only an interim position. So this other position came up with a company called Jarwin. And Jarwin does corporate partnerships where they bring mm -hmm. in secondees from corporate entities in the government and 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 they value add to aboriginal community controlled organizations so i thought oh well i don't really know what i'm doing but let's have a go at that and it sort of opened my eyes up to more administrative roles really and I, and i was looking around at the environment and at the aboriginal community controlled organizations they were supporting and i thought you know what i reckon i could do that so one came up in media and my peers leaned in and said, if not you, who? And I went, okay, no worries. <laughs> Took it on. And as part of that, you're, you're exposed to this whole new framework of working, which revolves around the Coalition of Peaks. So the Coalition of Peaks has only been around for a couple of years. But really what it was, was building on what we've always understood and that collectively we're going to get more purchase. And as being a member of that particular coalition, we, you know, we were able to drive those big transform or, or to start actually ignite the big transformative changes to the Closing the Gap framework that we're now starting to benefit from. Mm. So that, again, opens up another door to another peak and wow. along comes Snake and it was the right time and the right moment and clearly at that point in time I was the right person <laughs> or at least hopefully I was yeah. the right person. So, yeah, that's a really long way of saying I have no idea how I got here but it was part of those steps and that journey. How long have you been with Snake now? I'm brand new so I started on the 8th of February. This year? Yep, this year. Oh, good on you. Okay, congratulations. Thank you. So tell us then, has it always been a passion for – of yours personally, as far as the importance of cultural integration 
with kids and Indigenous kids in the community to try and oh, connect yeah. them back. Is that, is that something? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I guess a lot of that does come, goes back to, to my childhood because we, we did grow up in a very cultural framework with access to all our grandmothers yeah. and all our mums and all our fathers and, and all our brothers and sisters, you know, particularly in those days when we were at Nana's sister's homelands at, at Wallace Rockhole. You know, growing up in an environment where you're all being raised by your nanas, yeah, and there's thirty or forty of you huddled around a TV watching Bruce Lee, or you know, <laughs> again jumping in the rivers, being chased by your nanas, yeah. learning how to cook, learning how to do things together. I know that that gave us an incredible start in life, and one that was incredibly rich, and one I'm incredibly thankful for. And also, growing up as an Aboriginal person, you also see those families that are stepping into vulnerability because a lot of our families are vulnerable and, and we understand that, well, the way we frame it really in my family is to say this world is just too hard for some of our mob. They just don't have all the tools they need. So it has always been something that I wanted to do. It's always been something that my whole family does. And, and again, that was instilled by Grandpa who said if you have the ability to support other people then that's your responsibility and that's what he understood as an Aboriginal man. And that's what he's understood as a as a just a genuinely awesome human being. So it's never been separate from me. And and in the early part of my career, that was around storytelling. And to be perfectly honest, even now, it's it's around my ability to frame that story and tell that story and and help influence policy change so that children do have the opportunity to understand who they are, who their family are, how to interact with your mob and how to use this incredible tool of culture mm. to enable you to hit all the life outcomes you should be entitled to and to be able to make the choices that you need to have a really full life. Why do you think, and obviously you've been very lucky with you know, your background, your history and growing up and having that support network around you, where do you think the disconnect is these days with Indigenous kids and, and for those not able to connect to that? Where, where do you think the challenge lies? Look, I, I think there's numerous levels, so I guess it, it depends on which level you want to come in at. So one is that if you go straight back to colonisation, right, we, we're a colonised country and, um, and a, a country that was colonised illegally and being colonised illegally means that those systems that should have that would ordinarily be there in a colonised country to ensure that the existing culture is not wiped out but rather respected and part of this new world, they were gone. It was, mm. you know, it became about assimilation, get rid of it all. So these things are inherent in, in our government processes, they're inherent in our social consciousness yeah. and they're inherent in, I guess, everything that we do. So that's that's a really that's a really big piece of work and one that people often struggle to understand. And, and again, that goes back to that really clever tool of colonisation. And I remember reading, not reading, I heard um, Cornel West one day speaking about it and he was saying the one of the best, most effective tools of colonisation is to convince you that the people you've colonised were lesser, were lesser and then convince people who are lesser to start fighting amongst themselves. And we do see some of that today, but certainly understanding that we're still framed in things like statistics, which takes away our humanisation, you know, it, it dehumanises us, sorry, because we're seen as statistics. And, and often if you talk about Indigenous affairs, significant numbers of the population, they want to connect to it, but they don't know how. So you start talking about Indigenous affairs and people switch off, not because they're disinterested, but because 
there is no way to connect to it. So there's there's that social thing or when they're desperate to connect with you, well, how do we do it? How do we do it? We're a bit scared to enter this space. And then there's things like policy, like those assimilation policies were horrific. You know, they they didn't enable us to practice culture and they, they, and and get, don't get me wrong, you know, the reason we can still practice culture is because many families were able to say, well, stuff you, we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) And even those families that were oppressed managed to maintain elements of their culture and practice it in different ways. And which is, again, something that's often overlooked uh, when we're talking about these things is that people did manage to hang on to a lot of this. So there's those sorts of things, but then there's that inherent, I guess, unconscious bias that you see in in our big institutions, which uh, don't recognise necessarily what vulnerability looks like, don't recognise what cultural safety looks like, and, ha- and haven't worked out how incredibly sophisticated the Aboriginal culture is in understanding how to problem solve. For example, when we talked about ceremony, when you go to ceremony, there's 30 nations sitting at the table negotiating who should hold law, who should dance, who has responsibility for this, and they do it, they pass it, yeah. all, in the, all in the space of a few days. When they have royalty meetings, again, really complex conversations held by people who don't speak English as a first language, but I tell you what, they can negotiate these multi-million dollar deals. So very little credit is given to how complex our thinking is and our ability to see things from a very abstract perspective. We, we see what's coming next. But, yeah, certainly in, in terms of looking after children, our parenting practices and our family practices, we didn't need a welfare system because you went to the mother that was best capable of looking after you at that time or the one you wanted to go to at that time. If mm. one was having trouble, then the rest of the network stepped in. And, again, if you look at things like our child protection frameworks, while there is some growth in this space, often what we hear from our stakeholders on the ground is there is a lack of family conferencing that identifies there is an entire family responsible for looking after this child, not one person. So if we have a child struggling to get to school, do we punish that parent or do we say, well, guess what? Uncle over there, he can come into this conversation. He can take baby to school. Mm. So, it, yeah, I guess it's it's where you want to start yeah. unpacking all these little Interwoven threads. Well, a statistic you read out in your presentation was 18,862 children, Mm -hmm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, who are currently in out-of-home care. Sorry, 30th of June, Mm -hmm. 2020. Mind-blowing, hey. (laughs) Mind-blowing. But it's it's still the case. It is still the case. And I guess, again, talking about these statistics... What we understand and and certainly what our stakeholders are very good at reminding us about is every time, ostensibly the rationale behind putting children out of home care is currently they are unsafe and we need them to be safe. What it misses in that is every time a child is removed from care, you cause harm by disconnecting them to culture. So this isn't mumbo jumbo, this is is known, this is evidence-backed it causes significant harm to our children, which means that they are more likely to come into contact with the juvenile justice system. It means they're more likely to have long-term health consequences. It means they're less likely to be able to go to university and, and have access to all those things we've talked about, choices, the ability yeah. to lead their best lives. And, and and I don't like talking in the deficit, but we have to acknowledge that there is a significant level of harm involved in, in out-of-home care placements. Yeah, and the other interesting thing is around or over 10,000 of those are not in Indigenous mm-hmm. care either. Mm. So that's 
And there's even more of a disconnect there, right? Yeah, absolutely. So they they do, I mean, certainly the ACAs, the Aboriginal Child Care Agencies, and when we talk about child care agencies, we're not talking about child care. So those agencies are, are responsible for child and family welfare. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they'll tell you that there's the child placement principle that SNAKE advocated really, really strongly for based on the information from our stakeholders and the sectors that we represent. And and that's basically saying, look, you've got to find the kinship carers. These families have massive networks. But what we hear from our stakeholders is often efforts to find them fall short. So whether and that's largely because the people responsible for looking for these kinship carers are often not our own mob. So they don't know where to look. It's not that they're not trying, it's not that they're not good people with good intentions, but they do not have the connections to understand where these family members might be. So that's that's one barrier to 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 it. But the other one is a lot of our kinship carers, again, we're scared of these institutional places and institutions because our treatment within these systems has not been good. So often we don't know where to, our carers don't know where to work, where to access help or what help is available to them. And I think, you know, often the people responsible in these areas, again, aren't seeing the whole picture. So understanding that you might need to actually inform this particular carer of where those supports could be is really, really difficult to understand. And certainly I I know in the Territory, so for example, we were just doing some stakeholder consults and one of the grandmothers there was talking about how we now have in the Territory a kinship placement opportunity and that kinship carer has a level of support just like any other placement carer would have support but and it's now equal to what non-Indigenous carers got because it wasn't equal. We didn't have access to the same resources to be able to support this family. But if you are, say, a grandmother and you don't want your child in the system but you take on a child, well, that's your responsibility. You can't reach out to these systems and say, okay, well, I now have on an additional child that I'm supporting for my child who may, you know, be unable to care for this kid at this point in time. There is no assistance available and, and certainly something we've experienced or oh, I've experienced myself where we had um, one of the babies in our family was having needed to be placed somewhere and uh, we were desperate to get him out of facts and territory families as they're called now and, and I said, well, look, I'll take him but I will need some support to be able to pay for childcare because I work full time and, uh, and they said, oh, well, no, you can't because you'll have to pay for all those things yourself whereas the foster carer at this point in time not only has access to the taxis to be able to get him there, to yeah. money for clothing, to money for food, yeah. and we'll pay the childcare fees as well. But if you are an actual carer, family carer, those things are not available to you. Is that today? That's still the, that's still the case? It's still the case. Wow. That's incredible. Mm. And it is changing. Uh, it is changing. So we, we're always optimistic in this and yeah. we continue to lobby for it. And, you know, it, it is complex. Each jurisdiction is slightly different, but there are significant gaps in being able to support our kinship carers. Tell us about the importance of positive self-identity. What does that mean and how does that play a role? Oh, I'm being proud. Yeah. <laughs> there is no, I mean, you know, I mean, being proud of who you are, yeah. that it, that's, that's the power that enables you to walk into a room, you know, and, and understand who you are and know that you deserve to be in that room. I, I don't know if I can frame it any better than that, actually. No, that's, it comes that's down to being just proud of who you are. And, and I guess, again, as an Aboriginal person, we don't get a lot of opportunities to see that reflected in our environment. We might know it, and and it is changing. But certainly, again, I'm 
I'm from the Territory, so we walk into our schools and while that's proud and Bundarinya country, the school groups aren't named after our mob, they're not named after our tribes, uh, they're named after the explorers who found Alice Springs with the help of our mob, oddly enough, along our song lines. <laughs> so, you know, we don't have that and, and uh, you know, the naming of, you know, the, the naming of the schools, they belong to explorers and not to the people of this country. So, and that's everywhere. So that's just, just a small example of it, but that happens from the moment you hit yeah. childcare and the school systems. And there are many places where that's changing. I know um, when we were living on the northern beaches in Sydney, the kids had what house groups and they were named after local communities, but certainly that's not the case everywhere. No. Well, it certainly seems like we have a long way to go still with certainly with that stuff and, and I'm sure plenty more. Tell us about... The separation, obviously, from families is a key issue that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. What's the, some of the solutions that we're seeing put forward to try and help the avoid the displacement of kids, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids? Mm. Oh, look, I think where we're seeing real success is where we're getting more community-controlled responses because essentially, and I think we talked about in this conference just before, the difference between a decolonized approach, essentially, which flips the power base so that families are actually seen as it's the strengths of families are brought to the forefront. So it's not just one Aboriginal person in the room speaking to a whole heap of people who have more information than, than that person about what is happening, about what you can access, about what comes next. So if a community-led response tends to flip that and gives more families more power to understand what's going on, to ask the questions and to be actively involved in the solutions for getting the best outcomes for them as a family and, and, and also for a child. So we see a lot of success in those spaces Certainly the work of the Aboriginal-led family childcare centres is, is just incredible because they also understand, and, and, and again, it's, it becomes, it's something inherent in, in Aboriginal culture, is we understand that you actually can't separate learning and health and safety. They're, they're not separate entities. These things are all interwoven and interconnect. Mm. And if you even, you know, most of you would be familiar with welcome to country or an acknowledgement to country. Well, the reason you do that is because in the old days, when you come into a foreign environment where you didn't understand the rules because, you know, you're crossing boundaries, these are different nations, you would identify yourself so that people knew who you were and you can't get away with being naughty if people know who your family are or where to find you. But the other thing is that it identifies to the nation you're going to that you don't know everything that you might need to know. So they will link you up to the people that can support you. These are your mob. These are our rules and this is how you engage. But you're not just let loose. There isn't your next family picks you up and supports you. When I talk about sitting down with the grandmothers, everything was involved in that learning experience. You, you know, you'd sit down with your nanas and they'd start singing and they'd be teaching the mothers how to massage the babies. The grandfathers would be talking about how do we how do we keep everyone safe, how are we transferring law, all these sorts of things. But they were never disconnected. They were always connected. It, you, our learning is, I don't know, there's probably a word for it and I'm not finding it, but our learning is so integrated into everything that we do. What would be your ideal methodology or for educating kids on on the cultural aspects of indigenous history and and culture how do we best integrate that and and spread the word amongst our kids indigenous and non-indigenous how do we integrate it look i think from the time your kids hit any institution that has 
access to those things. And uh, institutions a terrible word, isn't it? But I'm but I'm talking about things like the childcare centres being yeah. not only culturally safe but um, culturally intelligent, and linking into the Aboriginal communities yeah. um, and learning from what we know. And obviously, our mob tend to gravitate usually if it's available to community-led responses because that's just intuitive and inherent in, in those processes. So there's those sorts of things, but you would have noticed again in that conference Tom Brideson talking about how a lot of the language around us talks about lost, lost, and, and a lot of it's negative language, and it's not. So it's about reversing, I guess, the way you think about how what those statistics might look like and understanding that their statistics are actually human beings. It's it's about putting some investment into having enough language teachers and enough language processes so that we actually can go in and mm-hmm. learn our languages and learn how to write our languages and pass those languages on. Because there were systematic policies involved in trying to dismantle them. And certainly even in the territory where I'm from, where language is still very strong, two of the languages that connect most closely to me, Pradama and the one for Alice Springs, they're on the vulnerable list, less than 20 fluent speakers. Wow. But there is no opportunity to practice this language because when you look at urban environments, it was illegal to speak your language. It was yeah. illegal to practice your culture. So enabling mob to practice culture, enabling children to be part of that practice in culture, enabling schools to work differently and to keep children safe differently, enabling changing policy to really understand that each and every place that you go to, the solutions will be different because the families are different, the landscape's different, but each and every community you go to, while the synergies are there, will actually know what the issue is and know what the problems are themselves. So listening to what those problems are and enabling the mob to actually jump into that space, fill it and implement those solutions. My assumption is that there'd still be certain nations around now Australia, there would probably not have that history that's carried through. Would that be correct? Like not everyone has got that, the language, the culture that's been passed on. Has there been a gap, do you think, in, in many of these areas? Some areas, I look at the way I like to think of it, again, because I try, if I can, to avoid any language that diminishes what people yeah. have. So I think some of our regions have been hit harder than others, yeah. absolutely, particularly those that are in metropolitan areas. Yeah because that's where the cities grew up. Yeah. yeah. And essentially what we also understand is all of those mob managed to hang on to their language patterns, their practising patterns, their understanding of how to fish or how to hunt. You know, even in the most urban environments you see you see it, but it's not – it's so interwoven into life that you don't necessarily yeah. see it for looking, but the mob know it. So we've seen some incredible advances in this place. Dan Grant Senior with what he did with the Wiradjuri language, that language was always there. He just had, he built the framework that pulled all those bits of language back in together and re-established it. And now it's 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 in the curriculum. Yeah. You know, wouldn't that be fantastic if we all had access to something like that? And I know it does people's heads in because when we talk about our countries, we are talking about distinct and different countries, each of them with a different language and a different law and a different culture and a different accent. But again, when you think about it, it doesn't – well, certainly I know if I'm talking to someone, I can almost immediately pick which part of the country they're from by their accent and their lilt. So those things are yeah. still there. Yeah, so it's sort of – it is there. It's about pulling those pieces back together and creating yeah. space for them to be rebuilt. 
Yeah, it's definitely something you want to encourage. And it's, I just think it's so, it's so crucial to have that. And you see New Zealand do it so well. I mean, they're now embedding the language in schools and it's part of the curriculum. I guess they're lucky, I think, in some respects that they only have one sort of main language, whereas we obviously have what, like 300 different versions of it. Is that correct? The different, more. <laughs> is that right? More, yeah, we have more languages than that, but they also have a treaty. Yeah. You know, they, they were colonised with a treaty and, and I'm sure most Maoris will tell you there are problems with that treaty. In fact, I heard someone telling a story about how her grandfather was one of the people who signed the document and in his lifetime he chopped down the flag that represented it 30 times wow. uh, every time he was frustrated. But there was a treaty. There is legislation. There are positions yeah. in parliament. And don't get me wrong, any colonised country has some problems because you still the systems were not set up by us. They, they, no. You know, we often don't find where the where the nuances are until we're actually practising it. But we, in Australia, we weren't, we weren't given that. We were told we didn't exist. Yeah. And we weren't even counted in the census until that, refer, until that incredibly famous referendum. Yeah. And we're still looking for things like our voice to parliament. We do not make the decisions about what governs us. We do not have the level of choice about how to live our lives that non-Indigenous Australians have because we're not the ones making the policy and driving the policy. And don't get me wrong, we're, we're seeing significant gains in this place, particularly yeah. around the work of the Coalition of Peaks and the ability to have priority reforms in place and to start driving really significant policy reforms. But these things take time and they're not, like I said, we're, we're missing a treaty. And again, that becomes contentious in and of itself because there's, there's also that acknowledgement that, you know, you would have heard it, we've never ceded. Actually, Aboriginal people, none of the nations actually gave up. None of them said, we've stopped having this argument about the fact that we are the First Nations people and our laws and our culture are still to be respected in this country and we still practice it. Yeah. Well, let's hope that it's, uh, like you said, it feels like we're on the way, but we're not there yet and still a long way to go, but certainly better than what it was. Tell us, let's talk now about the tragically high incidence of suicide rates and self-harm among Indigenous kids. What do you think is the biggest challenge going on with that? You've spoken about cultural integration and, and knowing their community and that, that grounding with their culture. Is that a key part and is there other things? If you look at trauma, it's trauma and intergenerational trauma and all those complex needs and, I guess, risks and vulnerabilities that scaffold or, or draw or, or, the, or that become, I guess, tentacles of trauma. It absolutely is that. And, you know, understanding that if you looked at an Aboriginal community, say under the intervention, where, you know, you had a, once upon a time there were councils elected by people on the ground to make decisions about how their communities were run. They were overrun by the intervention. They no longer exist so there's, there's a level of self-determination that's been stripped away. ATSIC is gone, and that was the body that, you know, it, it wasn't perfect, but as we're seeing in the news at the moment, Parliament's not particularly perfect either. No. But no one's stripping the Westminster system away and getting rid of it. So we've lost these incredible tools, but it, it really is, we, we work with what we've got and, uh, and we make the best of that, and, and it's what we know as Aboriginal people. But it is not one thing. It is absolutely not one thing and, and it, it is absolutely terrifying but families need hope and children need hope and we need opportunities and it's a really scary thing. In my son, my eldest son's little cohort of friends, there were five suicides in one year which is just inconceivable and um, one of those was his best friend and I know that the impact on 
us as a family, we still feel it today. You know, we yeah. absolutely still feel it today. And we weren't his immediate family. We were just his best friend's family. But the understanding that that particular suicide was, was, a, was one of those catchy ones. They classified as a death by misdemeanor. Yeah. And I don't want to talk about it too much because I haven't got permission to talk about it from his dad. But I do know that it's one of the scariest times of our lives. And certainly even now, every time you can't see your son, you go, has he made a decision? You know, has he got an option? Our children, for whatever reason, some of them see this as an option and it should never be the case. It should never be that your life feels so hopeless that you, you see suicide as an option. And that is a whole of Australian problem. Yeah, it certainly is. But, it, I mean, it just seems to be highly – I mean, the rates are obviously higher in this in the community of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids and something that we need to address. Do you think that, that we need to go back to empowering – the community as it was before that with the laws and the I mean do you think that's a big a big part of it is to just give the guidance give the counseling give it all back to the people and let them sort it out like like they did yes and no so the reason I say no is because if you did it all at once it wouldn't work because you've yeah. got to build this give you've got to build the opportunities and it takes time to develop policy it takes time to develop frameworks, it takes time to implement, it takes time to find where where the baby is and where the bathwater is because none of these things are going to be rolled the, perfectly the first time. What we do know, we absolutely do know, is that community-led solutions will give you a better outcome. They also, uh, where you have programs developed and rolled by community-controlled organisations, you also have more Indigenous engagement, you also have more Indigenous employees and Aboriginal people want to work for those particular organisations for all those things that go with them. They are culturally safe. They know that their their voices are listened to. They know that they're working with their peers. You know, you, you have a, what do you call it, critical mass. You know, the Aboriginal organisations support a critical mass. You know, the even things like your job selection criteria are actually accessible because the people developing them understand what transferable skill sets are and what are needed. But in, in the spaces we're talking about, there are a couple of, you know, there, there are some layers of expertise that will take time to build our mob for, with, and that's opening up opportunities to develop the workforce. But there's also those more community-leveled positions. Well, that's just looking at how we do things differently. You know, a lot of those early, all of those early support positions could absolutely go to mob on the ground. And then, of course, there's another thing where we see that a lot of the time, the areas that develop policy Aboriginal influence, you know, stops mid-level and never actually infiltrates to the top. I have conversations all the time with the people that develop policy and there might not be an ab another Aboriginal person in the room and yet these people are responsible with all the good intention and will in the world for developing yeah. those things that it doesn't seem logical, does it? No, but it, it, it is what it is at the moment and yeah. it will take time to develop those pathways and to create that space and, and a level of trust that there is some real that that there these when we talk about solutions in the community controlled space, these aren't imaginary. They're real. You have to trust them. Would you have would each community have their own approach, I guess, if we gave them control and to roll it out and, and take it on board, I guess it would sort of be determined by the community about how to get best go about it because their approach might be different, right? Oh, absolutely. Look, I was just having a chat to Auntie Muriel. Bamblett, who is our chair, mm. and uh, just going over a couple of things ahead of our next board meeting. And we were talking about how, how do we support 
as the national body, not every jurisdiction has access to a state-based peak. So how do we support those sec- those organisations in the sectors involved in child protection and early childhood development if they don't have the voice into government that they need to be having these conversations? And as part of that, you know, she said, you know, one of the issues we have is people like to pick up a model and go, okay, well, that model worked really well in Victoria. Let's put it into the Northern Territory. That won't work because that was built by Victorians for Victorians. And in the Territory, you know, our, our communities are so diverse that what you say, say you did something in Papunya where they're literature speakers, you could not go 80 kilometres down the road and replicate that model in Walbury country, say Yundamu, because the languages are different, the leaders are different, the stories are slightly different. So it has to be place-based and it has to be responsive, it has to be flexible, it has to be adaptive. And in some ways we, we need to be comfortable with it being speculative you know, let's give it a go because what we're doing right now clearly isn't working. So yeah. why can't we be a bit speculative and a bit brave in this space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes sense. Where do you think we're going? Where do you think you obviously moved into your role in February? But where do you? Where would you like to see it go? Where do you? I mean, where do you see it? What are the, some of the key things you'd like to achieve while you're you're in the CEO position? Uh, well, that one's relatively easy because we are prior. We are in the process of looking at where our priorities are. And I think what's becoming really evident is at this point in time and 40 years of the development of SNAKE, it really is the national reform. So our our space really is working with governments, working, and that's all levels of government, working with stakeholders on the ground to ensure that their voices feed into the big pieces of policy reform. And in particular, the two big pieces of policy reform that we're working on at the moment are the successor plan to the child protection framework and the other one is is a new way of looking at early childhood development if we can get into those places we've got the levers yeah. you know and, and part of it's getting the lever the other part is working out how to use those levers and the other one is uh, how do we make sure that everyone is accountable to what those levers were originally intended to do and to be because we often hear you know and, and again one of the really important things about the closing the gap framework is the coalition knows that the targets are measured by government and the targets are effectively are, are set by government and, and some of those targets have been really, really brave. So, for example, one of them is to reduce the number of children in out-of-home care by 45% within 10 years, right? So that is a big one that that all governments have signed up to. So we need to be able to... It's like 9,000 kids. It's it's a lot. It's it's absolutely a lot. So And, and we believe in the coalition that it's absolutely possible provided we are using these levers effectively, provided we're constantly back at the table, identifying when processes break down, what was the problem with the process, let's not get rid of this baby. So we know that there are some awesome big targets out there that people are willing to work towards. The other really big one in that space supporting the early childhood development is, you know, we understand that the original Closing the Gap framework, which again was not developed with with the inside of Aboriginal people, but rather imposed on us as ways to measure what we consider, you know, it's not what we consider to be a successful life, but it did measure access to preschool. But what, what we're finding in those is is that it's not a, a significant number of our children are experiencing developmental delays. So it doesn't matter that they're accessing pre- preschool, that's too late. 
for a lot of these children, the developmental delays, they're going to be consolidated for the rest of their life and it'll get worse and worse and the gap gets bigger and bigger. So the government did agree, the government, because it is all three levels of government, did agree to a target that was about increasing the number of children, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, meeting the criteria for all those five domains by 45% in 10 years as well. So these are big, big system reform, sector reform pieces that hopefully will not only change the way our organisations are able to access funding and deliver programs of services, but also enable our communities and hopefully change the landscape for the families and communities that we represent. Yeah. Wouldn't it be incredible if you could do that? I mean, achieve that in that time. I mean, that, <laughs> it would. I mean, what a, what a great goal. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, is that what excites you most about what lies ahead is the, the opportunity to get in there and and actually get this stuff happening and see those outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. If if we concentrated too much on things like statistics and deficits, we wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. But seeing where the opportunities are, that is absolutely exciting, seeing people signing up to wanting to be part of it. I mean, even things like being invited to present at conferences like this one, well, that's an opportunity to be in the room and, and influence a whole heap of people who are directly involved in service delivery What a Mm. gift that is. So we think a lot of things are coming together all at once. If anyone who's done any work in community development knows that it takes a whole heap of things to move to get to get to get over a tipping point it's not one piece of work it's it's the work of many so we're pretty excited about that and and certainly I'm excited about it and and feeling really privileged that the board thought that someone like myself could help work in this space to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can I can definitely tell you're passionate about it, so I think you're going to do really well. Catherine, tell us, a lot of our listeners are mental health professionals or workers out there that are on the front line, but also, you know, academics. We have uh, such a diverse range of people that follow us. What do you think the roles are for mental health practitioners moving forward in the implementation of some of this? How can they help? If you're looking for really practical supports, then, you know, there are things like that we, we have some significant tools available on our website. So I'd, I'd take a look at them yep. and see what's there, particularly around trauma-based responses and how to work with Aboriginal people in a culturally appropriate way. So there are tools and resources out there. There are ways to potentially look at how you develop, and I've touched on this before, how do we develop the Aboriginal workforce in this area as well? So, you know, think about things like starting up scholarships and opening up different ways of working with the mob. The other one is is understanding that you don't see everything when you look at people. You don't understand what – it's really hard to see a whole person. And it's really if, – if, if you're not on the other side, understanding even the barriers to communicating are really difficult sometimes. I, I heard a story once as, as one of our case studies where someone was saying it was a parent who – Things weren't going well with, and it looked like it looked like um, a child removal was was on the cards. And this particular mother was being told that her parenting practices need to needed to improve. And she was asking, "Well, what does that mean?" And as she's asking it, she's getting crosser and crosser and crosser, and more upset and more upset and more upset, which meant that the conferencing stopped. And what she needed from that conference didn't come through, and that was to be told you need to get out of bed earlier or whatever it was, whatever tool it was she needed to ensure that her her home was considered safe for her babies. And it was, it was it's an absolute breakdown in communication. And yeah. 
I don't I don't think it was one that was intended to to go bad, you know, whoever was in the room with that poor woman meant well, but the understanding of what yeah. was going wrong was that room safe enough at that particular time. Understanding that we don't actually have the language for these things. We we genuinely don't have them. We there is no word for mental illness in in our languages. We have pigajara in pigajara or luraja, you feel sick, but there's nothing to say I don't feel right because these are new. These these symptoms are new. We didn't have them. You know, 200 years ago, we didn't have them. This was not a concern of ours. So we don't have the labels and we tend to get a little bit worried about those labels. <laughs> uh, yeah. They're a bit scary with the, the interventions that are scared. So I understand often people might want your help, but we're a little bit scared of this help as well because sometimes it goes wrong for us. So understanding when you are a mental health practitioner, you have a level of power that the people coming into your room probably don't have because you understand the bigger context of what's going on, of what the potential outcomes are. So making sure you're really transparent with what's happening, what the impact of it is, what the outcomes might be, and, and if someone's at risk or if they're not at risk. So there's there's little tools like that. But I often think, um, if I, if I, I like to share a story. So I'll share two stories, which probably makes this podcast way too long. But the first one, involves, again, a family member of ours that is, I guess she'd be considered, I don't know what the appropriate term is actually, but anyhow, she hears voices and she has always heard voices and and she was getting very, very distressed. So she reached out to my nana, who's who's a traditional healer, and and never, ever, ever underestimate the the usefulness of our traditional healers, and this, this will speak to that. So she reaches out to nana and she says, yeah, yeah, this man is chasing me. This man is chasing me and he's scaring me and he's going to get me. Can you help me? So Nana sat down with her for the whole day and she rubbed oil on her skin and she's saying, and she rubbed her arms and she rubbed her legs and she pulled all of the bad feeling out of her. And this took all day, singing and loving and hugging her. And at the end of it, she whispered in her ear, she blew in her ear and she whispered, it's okay now. I chased that man away. He won't bother you anymore. And she didn't hear another voice for three years. Wow. And I often think about that and think, well, what would it... That's incredible. Yeah, what was the other way of dealing with that? Would that have been drugs? Would that have been counselling? But you know what? Uh, That traditional healer based Mm. her approach on caring and saying, there is nothing wrong with you. We just need to chase this man away and I will pull it out of your body and blow it out of your ear. You are safe. So I always think about that, and, and I guess that comes back to that earlier question of yours about why I'm passionate about trying to connect what I understand culturally with practice and outcomes today. The other one I'd like to share is, you know, when I was working in education, I, I went to visit a school, and I had with me um, an Aboriginal education officer, and, and her name was Shannon Clark, and I'm sure she wouldn't mind me sharing this story, but we walk into this particular school, and there's who's clearly in a heightened state of vulnerability and there's three teachers and they're all male and they're all large chasing him. You know, he's pulling things off walls and he's swearing and he's clearly, clearly distressed. And uh, with these three people chasing them, Shannon yells out, hey, you know, Joe Bloggs, is that you? And he stops dead in his tracks and he turns around and she says, Joe Bloggs, you look to me like you need a hug. Come here. And he walked over and she hugged him for about 30 seconds and she said, you're okay now? And he turned around and he said to the three teachers that were chasing him, I'm very sorry, I'll clean up that mess now and go back to class. 
Wow. Anyhow, so <laughs> so think about tools like caring yeah. and love and a hug. Yeah, it's incredible. I'd like that for my own kids too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish my kids would let me hug them. They run away. They're boys. What a great conversation! I, I think it's been so interesting hearing about your background, your culture, but also what you're up to at the moment and, and where you're heading, and the exciting things in front of you and the organisation of Snake. For those people who don't know, snakeisnaicc.org.au is the website for some tools. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to tell us about, tell our listeners in the closing statement? Is there anything you want to say? Not really. Look, other than we understand that we can't do this by ourselves. So we need people to be listening to conversations like this. We need people to be reaching out. Use those tools and understand that there is a different way to work with us. Don't be scared of working with us. And when I say us, I mean us as a people. I know that sometimes because I hear it, I hear people say, well, I'm a little bit worried about doing something wrong. We are uh, intuitively a very forgiving people and we understand that people are trying to navigate this. But in any circumstance, there are potential challenges. You're just used to working with them. Whereas you're not necess- people aren't necessarily used to working with us. So please do not be afraid. We, we need your support. And when we say support, that does that means don't come over the top of us and not even necessarily in partnership with us, but let us lead those conversations and lead those practices. Beautifully said. Catherine Little, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate that. And thanks for sharing your journey, your story with our listeners. And thanks very much. No worries. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.